Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage. Robert Bickers is a professor of history at Bristol University in the UK. He's visiting Hong Kong currently and, as I found out over morning coffee, is descended from middling Yorkshire farmers. Professor Bickers specialises in modern Chinese history and the history of colonialism, in particular the British Empire and its relations with China. His most recent book is Out of China, How the Chinese Ended the Era of Western Domination. He's also the director of the Hong Kong History Project at the university and is currently overseeing the research of eight students under the project, including one who's researching why it is in Hong Kong that a culture has evolved of tailoring a suit in minimal time. Robert Bickers has just been in Shanghai, where he's been researching his biography of John Swire and Sons, his latest project. He also spent three years here as a young boy, the son of a father who worked in the British Air Force, the RAF. I have eight PhD students on the project at the moment. Half of them are from Hong Kong, three British, uh, one from Canada. I also have a couple of master's students, again, one from here and one from Macau by way of background. Before this, I'd never had a student from Hong Kong uh, who'd managed to, to find the funding or find his or her way to Bristol. So, so it's great. And it's great that it's a mix of those who know their Hong Kong but are keen to study more about its history and those who are keen to study the history but don't necessarily know Hong Kong so well. So I get them all together in my office uh, every two weeks. That makes for a really good critical mass of interest and they've got very different topics uh, that they're looking at whether it's Portuguese Mackinese life in Hong Kong or the technicalities and, and politics of British status in Hong Kong for British born people from from the UK or British Chinese or the varied cosmopolitan communities of, of the British Empire. Yeah. Um, I've got people looking at the, the 50s, 60s and 70s and, as it were, grassroots organisations. Somebody looking at the history of tailoring and the suit. So it's a range of political history, social history, cultural history. Uh, it's a great mix. You have a very interesting job. One of the best jobs in the world, I, I, I think. I get paid a salary to write books and to work with very, very bright and interesting young people. And not always young people, uh, but, but people interested in history. Having been involved in Hong Kong Heritage for like 20 years, as in the programme, I'm less astonished these days about just how rich Hong Kong's history is. Well, yes, I, I have to admit, and people do remind me, that I come across as somewhat dismissive of the role of Hong Kong. My work has mainly been on British communities and British power in China, the history of Shanghai. And I would make asides about the fact that all oh, the Shanghai British used to think Hong Kong was a backwater. And I think some of my colleagues used to think that that's how I felt about Hong Kong. But <laughs> um, I was attracted to working on China uh, increasingly because massive archives opened up. In, in the 1990s and that's a gift for a historian and that somewhat blinded me to the possibilities of, of working uh, on what might be here in Hong Kong but as with any city as with any place the more you look the more you find and the more you you find the more you realize that is unanswered some of it's unanswerable but there are there are things to pursue and things to try and understand about how this city this engine of growth emerged 
over the last what, 150 years. So it's called the Hong Kong History Project? Yes, reimagining a city's history. I'd had the odd application to, to study projects around Hong Kong before, but only one student really had arrived and delivered a PhD, which is just, just being published. This initiative began with an approach from a donor who said, I'm really interested in trying to support and encourage the study of, of Hong Kong's history. And initially the funding was for two studentships across a, a five-year period. But the number of applications we've got and the quality of the applications we got was such that I have eight. <laughs> <laughs> and they've largely been able to secure funding from elsewhere as well, or at least partial funding. That's great. I have eight students working on the history of Hong Kong. Is it going to be a, a sort of one entity, the project, or is it just to house these different separate projects? It's a hub. Let's call it a Hong Kong history hub. I work with each of the students and I work with a colleague of mine in a different field who provides additional expertise. And the students have their own careers to develop. How did you get onto the history of Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong's part of my history. I lived here for three years in the early 1970s. My father was on helicopters at Kai Tak. I went to the, the Boy Scout troop at Kai Tak. I went to the swimming pool there. Early 1970s, so you were actually living near Kai Tak? Yes, on a now disappeared beneath a, a housing complex um, street of uh, Air Force housing, Sunderland Road. There were six three-storey blocks and, and lots of grass just underneath the, uh, the Beacon Hill on Waterloo Road. So I have very strong memories of that, very, very strong memories of, uh, of arriving in this hot, colourful, noisy, stinking, exciting place. Helped by the fact that my father conjured up an open-top sports car to drive us back from the airport somehow. So we really got a, a full experience. With the helicopter, that, that was for what, the RAF, the Royal Air Force? Yes. Why the helicopters were there is part of the modern history of Hong Kong. They hadn't been based there before the riots in 1967. The Defence Review in the late 1960s had not planned for a squadron of helicopters to be transferred there. So it's part of the evolving history of the colony, as was. There wasn't enough married quarters accommodation available because they hadn't managed to, to plan for that uh, and some of the, the families who came earlier were, were in uh, Chongqing mansions. Oh wow, <laughs> no, that's a very, very colourful introduction to Hong Kong. What a very interesting time to be here. So in the early 1970s, I mean what are we talking, 73? 71, we're talking 1971 till early 1974. Yeah. I went to the St Andrews Primary School, which is effectively just across the road. I led a very little English bubble life, really. We're within the compound, but Kowloon City, the shops in Kowloon City were very much a part of our world, toy shops in particular. Now, but your work, I mean, you've written extensively on... on the history of China and and uh, and also British colonial history in relation to that. Can you tell me about your most recent book? Uh, Out of China, How the Chinese Ended the Era of Foreign Domination, covers years from the end of the First World War to uh, the return of Hong Kong, the return of Macau, and the enduring legacies of, of that long period. It's in many ways a sequel to my earlier book, The Scramble for China, uh, foreign Devils in the Qing Empire, which looked at the, the, the rise and the growth of foreign power, the foreign treaty ports uh, in China and Chinese responses to these. This looks at how various forces within China eventually managed to push back the foreign presence to defy the Japanese invasion. It looks at the, the conflicts amongst the 
the foreign powers, such as the, the Pacific War, uh, amongst others. And then it looks at the, the legacy of what to do uh, in the People's Republic with uh, this cosmopolitan, westernized China, which had evolved in the, uh, in the 1920s and 30s and, and 40s. Um, it follows that story through, through the Cultural Revolution as much as anything else. The ambiguities of revolutionary success in modern China. I've always been interested in the long continuities and I've always been interested in individual experiences and stories within that. I think telling stories is the best way of making an argument. I look, I look for the stories and frame them within the bigger picture. When you're writing your book and, and describing this, this history that you look for stories mm. uh, to frame it in, um, can you describe to me a couple of those stories? Great political movements are made of individuals. They have leaders, planners, but they require people to, to sign on uh, and to make it a part <laughs> of their life as well. I was quite interested, for example, in the politics of China's cultural diplomacy across the 20th century. How did China persuade people overseas that it had some validity as a culture and a civilization? There had always been a small world of Sinophiles and Sinologists, but if you pick up nearly any magazine or, or book uh, about China, you'll find quite hostile references and caricatures which get repeated and you'll find in uh, in cinema or boys' fiction, hideous racist caricatures. So one episode which really interested me was the, the dispatch by the Chinese government of Chiang Kai-shek of an official envoy to the making of the MGM film The Good Earth, based on Pearl Buck's Nobel Prize winning novel in 1934-35, a man who called himself Theodore Tu, Teddy Tu, uh, Du Tingxiu, who was the official envoy to the making of this film. This had been agreed by a treaty signed between MGM and representatives of the Chinese government. Very unusual, first time ever Hollywood had signed a treaty with a foreign government about the making of a film in which they agreed to present a, uh, a truthful and pleasant impression of the country and that if the Chinese representatives that uh, concluded that they hadn't, they would uh, be allowed to place a preface at the start of the film saying, this is not China. And Teddy too interested me. So here was a man who had been to study in the United States for three or four years. Uh, he studied music. He was a singer. He was China's Caruso. What does that mean, the Caruso of the East? Well, he was a singer, a great <laughs> singer. In a Western genre, he'd been involved in the Shanghai Conservatory of Music uh, in, its, in its early years as well. He'd uh, been involved in uh, the teaching of music and singing as part of the, the uplifting of the Chinese people. It was part of a, a nationalist project. But in amongst all of these fine-sounding projects is this man who finds himself on a film set with Louise Rainier, who was a big star at the time, uh, and Paul Mooney. Um, it's a bizarre, surreal story, but here is a, a, a patriot who's, who's trying to help strengthen the country to deal with its, its degraded sovereignty. And there he is. That, that battle takes place on battlefields. It takes place in the negotiating chambers, in, in embassies and legation. It takes place on a Hollywood film set. So with MGM, I mean, did they stick to what they were supposed to do? 
almost. They didn't cast Chinese in the main yeah. lead roles, and that, of course, is a controversy, which still exists. It's not a whitewashing. Yeah. yeah. What was Louise Rainier's ethnic background? Oh, she was Austrian. So they were partly yellow-faced. Pearl Butt was born in China. Missionary parents. She wrote what she thought was gritty, sympathetic realism about life in the Chinese countryside. It wasn't liked in the long term in China. I, I mean, after the the coming to power of the the Communist Party, she was never able to go back to China. I mean, she did request to be allowed to return after Nixon visited. Uh, she was roundly told that she had been responsible for defaming China for for decades, and there was no way she was going to be allowed back in. The film is better than you might have expected, considering some of the other mainstream film content about China, which is coming out at the time. Its heart was in the right place. Uh, it was probably helped by the agreement, but it was more helped by the fact that MGM knew that if they got it wrong, they'd lose access to the Chinese film market. Because I mean, the Chinese film market is still very important. And it was important in the 1930s to companies like MGM as well. MGM wanted to. Break into the China market in terms of were they expecting this to be shown in China? Oh yes, yes. So they already had films being uh, distributed in China, and the government of Chiang Kai-shek had been actively policing the content of foreign and, of course, Chinese films since it came to power. Uh, many young Chinese nationalists were outraged at the portrayal of their country or their countrymen and women. Are on the Western stage, in Western films, the history of pushing back against racist or seemingly hostile or ignorant caricature had a much longer history than that. It didn't just begin with with the nationalists, but it was an important part of what Chinese nationalists, with a small n, and patriots were were trying to change about the world. The sick man of Asia was standing up and you know was was saying, "Hang on." I am not Fu Manchu. Happily, I find I have to explain Fu Manchu to a lot of people these days. But if you were a young chap growing up in England in the the 1910s or the 1920s, you read your Fu Manchu, and basically the devil incarnate in one man, an evil devil doctor, racist Chinese caricature,、uh, who liked nothing more than. Poisoning the the upstanding white chap and seducing the, the defenceless white woman. I mean, it's it's grotesque, but it was mainstream、uh, entertainment in film, on the radio, on stage, variations of this. So you feel it's moved on? I like to think so. Yes, it evolves. It takes different forms. The yellow peril thriller. Uh, or fears of the 1920s or, or 40s actually rather evolved easily into red peril thrillers of the of the 1950s and, and 60s. I can't remember the name of it now, but、uh, a Hollywood movie of the late 50s, early 60s about a renegade Chinese communist general who oversees a, a plot to dig a tunnel under the Pacific to blow up Los Angeles. I think it is. Wow, that's a long、yeah. tunnel. <laughs> it's a long tunnel, but anything is possible in the movie, as we know. So you've just been to Shanghai? Yes, I was there to undertake some of the the swire research and to nose around for some people I'm I'm interested in. So you're looking to do a historical project on swire, or are you looking? Is that your next book? Well, the book I'm currently researching is is a history of of John Swire and Sons from the early. 19th century for 150, 170 years or, or so.、Yeah. So Swire now in Hong Kong would be. I mean, I know their property, their、uh, their whole variety of of businesses. But how would、uh, John Swire have started? 
textile trade into the United States, all sorts of things. You <laughs> name it, they traded in it at the time. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you more when I finish the book. Yes, yes. We'll have to do this again. Yes. Um, but with your, I was also uh, intrigued by your student who is, what was it, doing the history of tailoring in the suit? Yes. yes. Why has Hong Kong become associated with, with tailoring? How did this come about? It can't have happened by accident. Um, what other city is associated with uh, arriving here and then there is a, a, a little industry geared towards getting you a suit? very, very rapidly. Uh, that's unusual. Um, but his, his project also began, we should get him to talk about the project at some point, but just thinking about how did Western suits come to be the form of male, and indeed female, attire? How did this happen? Why did, why did Chinese people start wearing Western-style clothing? What does it mean? So that's, that's the central question there. And it's one on which a surprising number of people have very strong opinions, it turns out. No, no, you should start it here, you should start it there, or you need to think about this, or have you thought about that? So he's, he's not short for advice. Where would you put the start? Because, I mean, I would, I would be, like, probably turn of the 20th century. Clearly, some people do start wearing Western-style clothing more routinely before the, the revolution, which overthrew the Manchus in 1911-12. But uh, it, it takes us back to, to the story of my new book, in a sense. I mean, how is China to be modern? What does Chinese nationalism mean? So the new republic that was established in 1912. Wearing a suit perhaps was modern, but for the new republic, wearing a suit what definitely was. It was a republican thing. It was a, a modern thing. That The China that had been overthrown was an effete, decadent China. Hence the fact that the symbol of subjection to the Qing, the wearing of the, the long uh, ponytail, the pigtail, the queue, uh, was a target for, for the Republicans who went around chopping off people's queues. But it's all very well chopping off the queue, but then what do you replace it with? Well, you so what, so they it? would just grab other people's ponytails? I think if you didn't cut yours off quickly enough, it, otherwise it seemed as if it was a symbol that you were still loyal to the, the state and hostile to, to the Republic. So it, there was a lot of enforced queue-cutting, yes, it, uh, during the Revolution. But the New Republic issued instructions to its, its, its government members and its, its personnel on the forms of Western-style clothing that they should wear on formal occasions. I mean, nationalisms have a repertoire of, of things which, which seem to make display the state, whether it's they have a national anthem, a national flag not all states originally did China, the Qing Empire didn't have a flag until um, it became uh, involved in more in global shipping connections uh, and they have national dress, national costume what's a national dress? And then it gets ridiculous a national flower or a national style of chair or a national style of a national drink, a national dish but, uh, but the New Republic of, of the Qing paid uh, important attention to how its personnel would dress on formal occasions. And if you look at the photographs of presidents of the, the early republic at official events, they're wearing top hats and tails. They look like Western diplomats. They have adopted that mode of dress. That would change later when, in fact, the nationalists, uh, Sun Yat-sen, start to wear a variation of the Western suit, which we would now know as the Sun Yat-sen suit, or the, in time, the Mao, the Mao suit, the Mao jacket, so you know, a different type of collar, no tie. So the way people dress is, is it's very interesting in terms of the way states are trying to uh, create an image for themselves. In terms of a male sense of comfort, 
What historical era would you go for to pick a suit? <laughs> well, look at me. <laughs> I think I'm comfortable enough in the present day, thank you. <laughs> no starched collars, no ties if I can help it. No, I mean, when you look back at the Victorian era, I mean, there was such also an element of discomfort. You know, there would have been a lot of wool and, as you say, starched collars. Yes. You should limit how sympathetic one is to some of these people and uh, the things they perpetrated. But to really understand life uh, at any particular point, it does help to, to think, OK, so what are people wearing? So they keep dropping dead of, 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 of sort of sunstroke. Why is this? Well, because they're overdressed and they don't quite realise. If you look at the lists of those who died suddenly or look at the, the columns in the newspapers or read through the, the, the death registers you realise that people really haven't quite twigged how, how to live in other climes. Your job as a historian you're looking at trade, you're looking at media, all aspects mm. of that period. Yes, historians are fairly omnivorous, we do, we do specialise I'm not an economic historian I don't sit there with the numbers but I, I need to try and make sense of the numbers I need to, to, to try and make sense of why people are there. I've always been interested in the infrastructure. Um, there are people who are very excited about migration and movement and mobility, and I say, yeah, that's great. I, how did they get from A to B? Physically, how do they do it? And it's interesting, how much does it cost? Uh, what needs to be built? What systems need to be established? But yes, I'm interested in um, the social world, cultural life, what people do with the opportunities they have. How, how does a chap from Grange over Sands in, in Lanc Lancashire end up being a policeman in Shanghai, for example, which was a key question to my second book, Empire Made Me. Uh, but how does anybody make a decision to move from Bristol to Hong Kong, or indeed from Hong Kong to Bristol? Our ancestors have always been much more mobile than we think. We might think that globalisation and migration internationally is a fairly recent vintage, except when we think of the settlers going to Australia or the United States or whatever, but uh, in fact people move you know, move promiscuously, they move for opportunity, and if you root back in many family histories you'll find more, more movement than, than might be imagined. Have you done your own family history? Yes, yes I have. Uh, in fact, for 300 years they didn't move very far at all, but then they did. And in, is that the bicker side? Or? On the bicker side, yes, yes. They were lower middling Yorkshire farmers who sort of moved around bits of North Yorkshire. But then in the 1870s, 80s, they're in Australia, South Africa, Rangoon, the United States. They, they, they moved. There's a generation who was suddenly moving everywhere, and they don't just move, they move and return. Well, they moved to one place, they moved to the States, and then back to the UK, and then to Queensland, or there's this one who goes to South Africa, 20 years, and then to, to Australia. It's not an exceptional story, it's, it's a fairly routine one. There's a more modern generation who were in uh, Malaya, as was, uh, and British India, with the, uh, with the army. But that mid-Victorian movement is it's what really interests me there, yes. Do you come from Yorkshire farmers? Do you f feel any kind of connection to your ancestors? I, I have to say no. I grew up in the, the world of the RAF. I grew up in Air Force bases. I went to, I don't know, a dozen schools. I lived in something like 14 different places before I... I left school and I went to one school for five years so it's a dozen schools including one for five years of my education so I'm fairly rootless 
uh, as a result, it's therefore fairly easy to move around. I always feel when, when you look back at the Victorian era, just the level of time that people were committing to, I mean, the time of the voyage, the, the way that people were waving goodbye, really not knowing when they were next seeing one another. That's right. Long voyages, difficult, uh, unpleasant, and it's not just the voyages, uh, it's the letter back saying you've arrived means they're not actually going to hear from you, say if you're sailing to Melbourne in the 1850s, for about six months at least. And so it, it is quite traumatic. On the other hand, people would do that and then they'd do it again. <laughs> so uh, we have outlined figures of tens of millions of people who, who left the British Isles. Around How many? Oh, yes, if, uh, including all the isles, including Ireland, of course. If we say something like 30 million people left these isles between 1815 and 1914, we also have to factor in that a lot of that is people who are leaving more than once, who have, like some of my own ancestors, went here, went there, went back, or people passing through, so the migration from Eastern Europe in particular and Germany, and people who are then moving on to the United States or elsewhere. So these movements of people are, are enormous, but then there are you know, those earlier generations of Bickers in Yorkshire who were very happy and content with Yorkshire, thank you very much. In terms of when you describe the archives, like with, with your China research and also with your Hong Kong history research, what would you say are, are major archives that are also usable for your, your layman, not just your academic? Well, one of the, the great joys is to go to the National Archives of, of the UK in Kew. Anyone can do it. Just don't go on a Monday because it's closed. Uh, you need to take uh, some proof of identification, uh, proof of address, and then you get your card, and then if it's open, you can call it up. You want it, you can get it. Some things are only available now on, on microfilm or, or electronically, but really, you want this cabinet office file from the 1940s? You can go and get it. Or you can call up this document relating to, oh, I don't know, the British Embassy in Chongqing's catering problems. You might not want that, but... <laughs> That's absolutely fabulous. There are no, so within that, there are no restrictions. But it's the state's archive. It's the archives of the central state. It's only one type of archive. I would encourage people to go to their local city archives, town archives, because you've got records there of you know, who lived in your house, uh, who lived on that street, and, and where had they come from and where did they go, and what, what does that mean? When was your house built? How can you find out about it? And local archives, any local archive, will help you piece that, that story together. So yes, I think my favourite archive is the UK National Archive. I keep finding more things there, runs of material that I hadn't quite noticed before, and you open it up and there are files about 3,000 individuals with, you know, detailed information about them here. Um, I'm sure there's a great deal more in the, the public record office here still to be trawled through and, and dug out. All archives have their limitations. If all governments kept everything that they, they produced, we would sink beneath the irrelevance. So all archives are weeded. I've had great fun in Kew. I've had great fun in Shanghai, the municipal archives in Shanghai. Uh, I was just in Shanghai in the, the Rare Books Library of the, the, the Shanghai Library, which is in uh, an old Jesuit building in Suzhou-Hui. So, and that's where they store old foreign language newspapers and other fo uh, old foreign language books. 
and uh, if you get a Shanghai library card, which is very easy to do, just turn up your passport. You can call them up, and there I was reading the, the China Press newspaper from 1941, um, or a, a Russian newspaper from 1935. It's great. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be a university academic. Uh, that's a, always a thing to remember, that on the whole, most uh, public archives are open to the public and want the public to use them. They need the public there. So go support your local archive. <laughs> My thanks to Professor Robert Bickers, Professor of History at the University of Bristol in the UK. If you'd like to look up the Hong Kong History Project, then just type the Hong Kong History Project into Google and you should be able to find it. The project has also uploaded thousands of historic photos of China. If you'd like to take a look at those, they're available at the web address hpcbristol.net. That's hpcbristol.net. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>